But it's good to see everybody. I'm Matthew, one of the pastors here. And uh, welcome to the Hills Church, where we believe that we've been called to follow Jesus, love our neighbors, and build an economically and racially diverse church. All right, so who completed last week's homework? Before you answer, just turn to the person next to you and ask them, what, what was the homework? <laughs> it's all right. It's okay. The, the homework, we are in the book of Acts. And so within the next couple of weeks, I encourage everybody uh, to read the book of Acts from the first chapter to the last chapter. Try to do it in a couple of settings. So we're on Acts chapter 1. It's page 758 uh, in the Bible that's under your chair there, Acts chapter 1. And we just have started this new series called Acts, the Unstoppable Power of the Gospel. And I asked this question last week, but have you ever considered what it would be like if we didn't have the book of Acts? Like as you're reading through Scripture, you read through the Gospels, you get to the end of the Gospel of John, where Jesus is talking with one of his disciples, Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter responds, Jesus, you know I love you. And back and forth three times, and then the book is over. And without the book of Acts, you, you get to this letter to the Romans, where it's Paul uh, called by God to the church in Rome. Like, how, how did that happen? Who's Paul? Like, how did we get from Jerusalem, Judea? How did we get to Rome? And so without the book of Acts, we just don't know much about the early church. And uh, we don't know who Paul is. We don't know who these people who aren't Jews are. How did they get into the story? And the book of Acts covers a span of 30 years after the life of Jesus. So from his, uh, his resurrection and ascension to about 63 to 65 AD, depending on which, uh, which scholar you look at. So it covers a, about uh, 30 to 32 years of the life of the, of the church. And it breaks down like this in the book of Acts. So the first couple of chapters, 50 days. And then it starts to slow down. So as you're reading Acts this week, see what I did there? Uh, and it's like, man, a lot happened in a short time. It actually takes about 30 years to get to the end of Acts. So keep that in mind as you're reading. that This wasn't just an, an overnight thing. Um, and so we get this, this understanding of how the church expanded uh, geographically, how it expanded culturally. Um, and just think about what the first church accomplished in 30 years. Now, when we launched last September, we had 125 people here that joined us that day. And a lot of those were friends that were here to support us. But in uh, Acts chapter 2, we're going to see where there's some followers of Jesus together. And how many, if you've read the story before, how many were there at that, that very first Pentecost in the upper room? 120. That's kind of close to 125. I feel like there's something there. And, uh, but in 30 years, you had this small group of people that turned the world upside down. And, and I am guilty as, you know, trying to get the church started. And I've confessed this uh, to some of you. Like, my goal, I just want to make it past next Sunday. You know what I mean? Like, well, let's get to next Sunday. Hopefully some people show up, and then we can make it to the next Sunday. And, but when we look at the book of Acts and, and what uh, these, these followers of Jesus did in 30 years, I wonder, like, if we could lift up our gaze just for a moment and, and look down the road 30 years. Now, for myself, that puts me at about 60. Uh, and, and that is 
and a quick math, the year 2048. How could God use us as a church, as, as a people? How might God want to take us to the ends of the earth? Um, and we are, uh, if you've been around here, you know we're a neighborhood-focused church, and we love our neighborhood, and that is right, and we're going to continue to do that. But there is something about this call that we're going to read about in the first uh, verses here of, of the book of Acts, taking this good news to the ends of the earth. And, and I wonder, like, what if, as a church, as people came to know Jesus, like, we never grew beyond a couple hundred people because we just began sending people out. We began sending people to other countries and, and to unreached people groups we'll talk about in just a moment. And, and we're starting other churches. And, and so, like, maybe this doesn't get a whole lot bigger, but it's because we're, we're sending. Like, we're not trying to grow our, our empire here. I wonder how God could use us. And my initial, one of my reactions to this is, Matthew, that's a little presumptuous, don't you think, about the Hills Church changing the world? This, this isn't about the Hills Church. Um, and we're going to uh, read in just a moment in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. So it's about being a witness for Jesus Christ. And in the book of Acts and in the Gospels, do you know that you'll never find the author's name? Like they never write their, their name in to the text. Now, if I'm writing a book of such consequence, I'm probably going to put my name in the book, at least for the royalties. You know what I'm saying? Um, they didn't have royalties back then, okay? But, uh, and it makes even so... Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke, John, and then Luke had a second chance to put his name in there. Now, I will say, scholars think that John wrote himself into the book as the one that Jesus loved, the disciple that, you know, John, he's putting his name out there a little bit. But in general, like, we have no uh, idea, and some scholars will debate, like, who actually wrote these, these books, and we have some tradition that we we. We go with on these things, but, and I wonder why the authors didn't write themselves in a little more, and I think one reason is that this was not their personal story. This was not their biography. This was the story that belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. It's, it's our story as well, and I think another reason is that coming to Jesus had infused them with humility, to know that, um, like, we, we are... We have been empowered for witness, but we're not witnessing. We're not testifying to ourselves. We're testifying to someone greater than ourselves. And so when we read these stories and, and we think of these great heroes of the faith, Luke is not the hero. Peter is not the hero. Paul is not the hero. And, and if someday, and if 30 years from now, they begin to write the history of, of the Hills Church because God has moved, I pray that the Hills Church would barely even be mentioned in that because we are not the heroes of the story. It is our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the hero of the story and who the story points to. And, and you can clap right there. That's all right. I'll tell you. Um, so that, you know, I don't know why the, the writers didn't, but I can just kind of uh, come up maybe a theory for why they didn't write themselves into the, to the story. And, and we see these these people of God, they fade into the background 
as, as the story of Jesus is put forward. And, and they write, and I'm sure you've heard preachers talk about his story, right? As from a Christian perspective, the story of history is God working in our lives, yes, but also in the world uh, around us. And so Acts chapter 1, hope you've had time to turn there, page 758, it'll also be on the screen. And we're going to just cover the first two verses again. It won't, it won't take long. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now last week we covered the first two verses. And I did a little math. And if we cover two, weeks, two verses every week, we will finish the book of Acts in 2025. <laughs> it's not going to take that long, okay? But that was just some intro, so we had to get some things out there. It's going to speed up. Um, so anyway, don't get, don't get too nervous there. But what's happening in the, in the book of Acts, remember it's a, uh, it's a sequel to the Gospels. Jesus is uh, he's raised from the dead. He's with his disciples for 40 days. And so in these first verses, it's telling us what Jesus did and where on earth did Jesus go? Like literally, where on earth did Jesus go? And so in verse 3, it says that he met with his followers and he, he gave them proof that he was alive. And I think sometimes when we look back at the ancient world, we see them as uh, uh, simpletons, maybe, uneducated. Like they didn't have a very scientific mind, so it would be easier for them to believe in the resurrection. You know what I'm, I'm talking about? But I can assure you that resurrection 2,000 years ago was no more common than it is today. Like they weren't, they weren't people that were coming back from the dead, and if, if they did think someone did, it was more like, ah, that's a ghost. Like that is not a real person. And so Jesus is giving them convincing proofs that he is, in fact, alive. And one of the proofs in verse 4 is that he eats with them. Jesus sits down and eats with them because he wants them to know that he is not a ghost, he is not a phantasma, he is not a wraith. Like whatever your term is for what happens when someone dies, like he, he is not that. He is alive in the flesh and so he eats with them. And, but we don't think that Jesus had to eat with them. Like he was just showing there was no longer a, a hunger that Jesus had. And, uh, but I think, but Jesus eats with them to show them that he is real, but it also shows us something about the importance of sharing meals together. Like even when Jesus didn't have to eat, he ate with his disciples. And, and as a church, we, we preach sharing meals together. Not only that, we practice it. You know what I'm talking about? We practice sharing meals together this month, five Sundays. So what are we going to do the last Sunday of the month? Pancake breakfast, Yes. So if you're, if you're new around here, every fifth Sunday, instead of doing this, we will join together to break bread together, to share a meal together. And that's a whole sermon in itself. But for 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus is talking with his disciples. And if I was there, and if you were there, you might have some questions for Jesus. Like one, I would have liked Jesus to answer and maybe put in the story somewhere 
is, Jesus, could you explain the Trinity to me? Like, how does that three-in-one work? How does, um, like, just two to three sentences. Just knock that one out for us so we can get rid of all the debate on that one. Or, or what, uh, what's with the whole predestination free will thing? Like, do we have free will? Or are we all just kind of pieces on God's chessboard? You know, the things that bother theologians. You're like, Matthew, I don't know. What kind of questions are those? Uh, but you might have your own questions that you would ask Jesus during that time. Um, like, what about angels? You guys ever think, ever think about angels? Like, are there, are there different tiers of angels, cherubs, seraphs? I mean, when, when a bell rings, <laughs> no, no I, wasn't, I wouldn't ask Jesus that. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful life. Bell rings, an angel gets its wings. All right, never mind. Um, but questions for Jesus. What happens to us when we die, Jesus? Like, what, what does that look like? I mean, my, there's a second resurrection, but like, how does my spirit and my body, are they separate? Where do they go? And what's heaven going to be like? Can I just get one snapshot of heaven? Because when we think of heaven, it's, it's like clouds and harps, right? But the Bible talks about a, a garden. And, and so I wonder... And you're like, Matthew, those are really inappropriate questions for Jesus. Um, it's all right. The disciples in the next verse asked Jesus, it's kind of an inappropriate question. Um, and we'll, we'll get to that in a, a moment. And so I don't know what Jesus was, was teaching the disciples, except for two things we see in, in the text. Um, he teaches them about a program and about a person. You're like, where, well, where do you see that? Well, the end of verse 3 says he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now that was God's program, like what he was doing in the world. And so when we think about the kingdom of God, and when you read the Gospels, Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God, explaining it to them, what it's like. And uh, the kingdom of God is like a treasure. The kingdom of God is like a landlord. The, the kingdom of God is like a seed that grows slowly. And um, So I don't know if, if Jesus was teaching them something new here on the kingdom, or just reinforcing the things that he had, he had already taught and um, maybe reminding them that the kingdom of God is within us. It's, it's not seen. It's not political. It's, um, it grows secretly. And so he's reinforcing that the message of, is one of laying down your life. And so he talks about this program, the kingdom of God, but he's also teaching them about a person. Uh, in verse 4, it says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is telling them, besides what I've, I've taught you about this, I'm going to give you this gift from my father, and you need to wait for this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's not a, I mean, baptism in Greek is not sprinkling. It, is, it means immersion. And so this baptism in the Holy Spirit is not like you're just going to get a little Holy Spirit. No, you're going to be baptized. You're going to be, it's going to be like a, a deluge coming on you of the Spirit and coming in power. And so there's this promise and, and Jesus is saying, get ready. There, there's something more that's coming. You have to be ready, prepared for this work that I've called you to. And so for 40 days, Jesus is talking about kingdom of God, the Spirit of God, and... Um, and there was this hope. The, the prophets of old said that when the kingdom of God came, the Spirit of God would also come. It would be at work 
among his people and the spirit of God would become a living and present reality. And the disciples hear this and they're like, all right, got it, that sounds great. And here's their question in verse six. Kingdom of God is coming, this is good. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times, the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the disciples, they hear this Jesus talking about the kingdom. They hear this talk about the spirit of God. And so they begin thinking um, that God is about to restore Israel to the way that they wanted. And in your sanctified imagination, I can just see Jesus being like, you know, guys, I've been with you for three years and now 40 days, and I am the greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the earth, and you still don't get it. Like, and I don't know if face palming was a thing, but Jesus is face palming with his disciples at this moment. Like, all I've taught you about the kingdom, and here you're asking about if the kingdom is about to be restored now, and, and John Calvin, the, the great uh, Reformation theologian said there are as many errors in this question as words, like from their perspective. Um, the verb, the noun, the adverb all betray confusion when it comes to God's kingdom. So they said at this time. So they're expecting like God's immediate kingdom coming right now among them. Will you restore? Shows that they're expecting a, a political or a territorial kingdom. They're looking for power. And then they mention Israel, and it shows that they were expecting a national kingdom. Like, God's going to make all this right for us now. And, and Jesus, he attacks each three of these heirs and what he replies to them. And we want to take a few moments to look at that. He's, he reminds them that the kingdom of God isn't political, it isn't territorial, that it's spiritual in character. The kingdom of God is spiritual in, in character. And by spiritual, I mean that it's animated by the spirit of God. It's, it's not territorial. And, um, and in his reply, Jesus focuses on the Holy Spirit. Like the spirit is going to come among you and, and be with you. And the, the, the idea of the kingdom of God also brings with it the idea of power. But the disciples got the power wrong. They thought it was a, uh, a power for them. And, um, but it wasn't. And in God's kingdom, it comes by witnesses, not by soldiers, through the gospel of peace, not a declaration of war, and by the work of the Spirit, not by force of arms or political intrigue or revolutionary violence. That's God's kingdom. But at the same time, we have to be careful not to make God's kingdom too super spiritual, as if God's kingdom is only in heaven and not on earth at all. Because the kingdom of God will inform our politics. It will inform how we uh, walk through life. And, um, and in fact, it should identify you more than if you vote red or blue. Like someone asks you, what, what's your party? Well, I'm third party. Kingdom of God party. Like that's my party. You know what I'm talking um, And as, as citizens of God's kingdom, uh, we owe our ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ. We owe our ultimate allegiance to, to Jesus Christ, and so we don't, we don't give in to uh, Caesar, so to speak, who demands from us our supreme loyalty at times. 
Because there are times when following Jesus is going to lead us at odds with Caesar and what Caesar represents. And so Jesus reminds us that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And he also reminds the disciples that the kingdom of God isn't national, but it's international in its membership. And Because the disciples say, are you going to restore Israel at this time? And Jesus says, this isn't just for Israel. And in verse 8, he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And the apostles, they cherished a very narrow, nationalistic aspiration. Um, and they asked Jesus to, if he was going to restore the kingdom. And, and Jesus begins to open their eyes and to broaden their horizons to what he was doing in the world. And um, in fact, Jesus says, you're going to begin at home in Jerusalem, but it's not going to end there. And in fact, the book of Acts uh, 1 verse 8, and we'll, I'm going to put it up here real quick. Uh, if we'll put it up the next, next slide. There we go. In this verse... Many scholars see this as a table of contents for the book. And so uh, Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know ancient Near East geography so well. We probably don't know modern geography so well, you know, if we're honest. And so when he's talking about Jerusalem, he's like, that's hometown. That's Denver. If it was happening here, that's Denver. And so the first seven chapters, they are all in Jerusalem. And then he says, uh, in Judea and Samaria are going to be my witnesses. So if we were to take that, like a, a kind of a modern, we'd probably go like front range in Texas. Well, they didn't like the Samaritans. Okay, just think about that. Uh, Judea and Samaria. No, on the Texas, being Samaria? Or people don't like Texas? Never mind, okay. Uh, and then the final, final chapters, uh, 13 through 28, that's where the gospel is taken to the ends of the earth. And so how do you think ends of the earth translates for us today? Ends of the earth. That's right. I'm paying attention. I like it. Um, and, and so we're coming up here on uh, July 4th where we celebrate our, our independence. And, and this can be a little, a little touchy when it comes to like our patriotism. And is, is patriotism, is it contrary to the kingdom of God? And just want to say a couple things at this point that uh, patriotism, I don't think in itself is incompatible with the kingdom of God. But the gospel tolerates no nationalism. And there's a, a difference. There is a difference. I want to give me just a moment. And, and I'm thankful to live in the United States. Like I, I love this country and I'm okay with saying God bless America. But if I only ever say God bless America if I don't realize that God is just as concerned with the people outside our borders as he is with those inside the borders, if I never say God bless them, if it's just God bless them, I've, I've missed the boat. I've missed what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples, that this good news is not just for us and that Jesus is not just the patron God of America and that as if we were somehow God's chosen people to the world. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, and at the same time, I love America. I love, I love our country, and I will, I will celebrate on, on the 4th. And, um, but that is not, 
there's something more we read about just in this first verse. This the gospel, this concern of God's is, is not just for us. And, and the disciples, like we're with Jesus all the time, and in the next couple of chapters, we're going to see it took them a while to understand this. Like they heard what, what Jesus was saying, but uh, it took a, a move of God in a very peculiar way to actually get them to go out beyond their own national identity. So th- this gospel, it, it goes beyond just race and nation and rank and sex, and there are no barriers in this kingdom of God. So it's not national, it's international, it's membership. And then uh, it's not immediate, this kingdom of God. It's gradual and it's, it's going kind of slow. It's not just like all of a sudden here, Jesus sets up shop. One day, we believe that Jesus is coming back to do that. But in, in the meantime, and the, and the, uh, the apostles, they question a specific reference to time. They say, at this time and, and during the ministry of Jesus, when he was on earth before his death, there, Luke records uh, several accounts where the disciples are like, okay, Jesus, are, are you at this time going to restore Israel? And Jesus had to do some teaching. He's like, no, that's not going to happen. And they didn't really believe Jesus. Like he had to keep telling them, no, that's not what I'm doing. And then Jesus died. And they finally believed, like, well, maybe he's not going to do this kingdom thing because he's dead. Well, after he rose from the dead, like, they begin to go back to, okay, okay. like, he died, he has conquered death in the grave. Now maybe it's coming, God's kingdom has come, and, and Jesus is, tells him, it's not for you to know the times or, or the seasons. And um, in fact, what Jesus tells them is basically, until I've come back, you have work to do. You have work to do. And um, in the coming of God's kingdom, I mean, there's, um, there's different groups of, of Christians and believers, and, and even in our own lives from time to time, we, we might think about, like, when is Jesus going to come back? Like, when is this sorrow and this pain going to be over? And, and some people try to put a date on it. Run away from them, okay? Don't, don't do any of that kind of stuff. Uh, but it, it seems like what Jesus here is that he is relating uh, the coming kingdom of God to, to the mission of God. And, and one uh, missionary put it like this. He said, the church is the pilgrim people of God. It's on the move, hastening to the ends of the earth to beseech all men to be reconciled to God and hastening to the end of time to meet its Lord who will gather all into one. It cannot be understood rightly except in a perspective which is at once missionary and eschatological. And, and eschatological just means like focused on the end times. And, and so uh, the, the idea is, is that they ask, like, when is the kingdom of God coming? And Jesus doesn't answer that. He's like, get to work on the mission. And the idea is that we have been called to the ends of the earth and in this kingdom of God, the end, like the end of the world, when Jesus is going to make things right, at some point, we will have reached the ends of the earth. I don't know when that's going to be exactly. But at that moment, that's when the end will come, when we have fulfilled the mission of God. And so there's this, this balance. I mean, Jesus taught like you don't know the day, you don't know the hour. Take this message to the end. And when the message gets to the end of the world, then that will be the end of time where Jesus will come back and restore and, and make all things new. And, and so this, this kingdom of God, it's spiritual in character. It transforms our, our lives and our values as citizens. And it's international in its membership and it's gradual in its expansion. But it is expanding the kingdom of God. And 
Just as I conclude, I want to point out one, one final thing about uh, verse 8. Jesus says, wait and you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And, and this word power in the Greek is dunamis. And some preachers, you may have heard, they like to well, say dunamis. Well, that's where we get the word dynamite from. So this is dynamite power. Except dynamite wasn't invented until like 150 years ago. Um, so we can't take look back on scripture like that. And even the word dynamite wasn't popularized, popularized until the 1970s. JJ, good times. Dynamite! <laughs> That was a bad impression. That was a bad impression. I apologize. I shouldn't do that. Um, but all the same, don't do that, Courtney. Is that she's saying? Don't ever do that again. Don't ever do that again. Um, all the same, there, there is this power that God has promised to his church, to his people to carry out this mission. And because I can imagine the disciples, like when Jesus first tells them this, like take this gospel, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and they're probably just like, okay, whatever. Like just not even listening. But if, if they had thought through what that meant, there was 120 of them and 250 million people in the Roman Empire, in the Roman Empire at that time. So that's one follower of Jesus for every 1.2 million people. That's impossible. That cannot be done taking this gospel to the ends of the earth. Yet in 30 years, they take the gospel to what they know as the end of the earth. And, and it was only because they had received this power of the Holy Spirit was at work behind them and giving them the, the strength and the energy and, and the conviction to keep, to keep going. And, and as incredible as that was, in the 2,000 years since then, the church is still expanding as we take this to the ends of the earth. Um, sociologists tell us that there are 17,000 people groups in the world. Wow. 17,000 people groups, like different, different cultures, some different languages. 7,000 of them are considered unreached people groups. And by unreached, it just means that they lack enough followers of Christ and resources to evangelize their own people. This means there's maybe just a handful. And so what that equates to, there's seven and a half billion people on the earth. There are still three billion people who have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that God is calling his church today to once again refocus, reshift, get up from our, you know, just kind of going through the, through the motions and, and just our, like, I want to raise my family, which to know Jesus, you should. But there is something more. There is a greater call to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he is calling us to be a part of what he is doing in the world, and he, he wants to empower us by his spirit to do that. So I don't, I don't know what that looks like. I just know that we, we can't, like if I were just to, like I'm a strategy type guy, uh, like smart goals, right? Like what's my objective? How am I going to get there? And what's my timetable, Right? Smart goals. And if the disciples had done that, they would have failed. Not that I'm against having a strategy and a plan, but they first had to wait for this power from God to fill them, to give them, well, we're going to see what's going to happen in the next chapter and how they turn the world upside down. And so uh, we're going to, uh, we're not getting the end of the story today, 
but the task for us is unfinished. And we can't do it on our own, and we need God's Spirit to empower us. We need God's Spirit to empower us. And we're going to move into a time of communion in a moment. I'll just, I want to pray for us before we move into communion. Um, Just that we would make ourselves available to be used by God over the course of the the next 30 years, um, whatever that, that may look like. Heavenly Father, just like you spoke and you commissioned those, uh, those first followers, we want to be ready to hear. We want to be ready to go to the ends of the earth. Uh, the, the task is too great for us, and, and, but we can play a part. We can play a part, and, and we are powerless without you to do this. And as a church, may we seek a greater presence of the Spirit in our lives, May we be empowered. May we be baptized by the Spirit of God to take this good news to the ends of the earth. Amen.